This week, we'll talk about career transitioning from quality assurance to machine learning. And we have a special guest today, Alvaro. Alvaro worked in the cell phone industry as a quality assurance engineer, but got tired of it, spent a few years unemployed, fell in love with machine learning, and eventually got hired by a consultancy company. Right now, Alvaro is managing machine learning and NLP projects. I got to know Alvaro when he took part in our machine learning and data engineering Zoom camps on our courses, and he published awesome notes. If you're taking the course right now, you must have seen his notes. They are really amazing. If you haven't, please do check them out. And he helped a lot other students during the course. And I'm very happy to invite Alvaro to this interview and talk about his career journey. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for joining us. So let's start with your background. Sure. Can you tell us briefly about your career journey so far? Right. I studied in Spain. I'm from Barcelona, Spain, and I studied here. I studied informatics engineering, which is in the old Spanish education system, used to be like a mix of computer engineering and computer science. So we did lots of programming, but we also took a look at you know hardware side of things. I did that. I started working for a company, a cell phone company, for a bit here in Spain. I actually did quality assurance. So we re I received prototypes, I tested them, and then this company changed they did not change hands, but they changed like the founding model or something. So they started focusing more on Latin America. So after I took a gap here, and then they actually called me and said, hey, would you like to come to Mexico and work for us again? And I said, yeah, sure, why not? So I went there. I worked there for almost four years. And I decided that I did not like that kind of job anymore. I did not enjoy the industry at all. And I decided to quit. I went back to Spain. I was unemployed for two years. I studied in the meantime until I found machine learning and I managed to get hired by a company working in machine learning. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And how did your day look like when you worked as a quality and assurance engineer? So you mentioned that you received prototypes and That's you correct. tested them. So was it like, I don't know, getting a phone like that and then interacting with the phone? Yeah, it's not like software QA or software testing, I did not do any kind of unit testing or anything like that. I just received the prototype and I did field testing. I would like went outside and checked the GPS and checked the maps navigation, how it worked. I tested the sound, I tested the microphone recording, I tested all the sensors in the phone. I did battery testing, like see how well it performed. I checked for translation issues. The way with these kinds of companies work is they actually, most of the design and construction and pretty much everything is done in China. Like if you have money and you want to build your own brand, what you do is you go to China and then you contact an OEM or an ODM, actually, like a design house, and they will do everything for you. So you only have to put the money, you have to put your branding, and you have to take care of the importing and the paperwork in your country. And so you can find that many different small unknown brands will sell the same phone in different countries just with different branding because they just went to the same design house and they already offered a ready-made solution. And that's how they work. Sometimes you can also find exclusive designs, which is what my company did. So we actually had designs that no one else had, but everything was designed in China. I actually would have liked to go to China and get involved in that part of the design and development, but luckily it was not meant to be. I decided to change careers and that's it. But yeah, I just received a prototype, I tested it, and then made a report and sent it back. And then I would get a software update, which I would flash onto the phone and test it again. That's pretty much the workflow. But I guess you also had some sort of test suits, like uh, things you need to test, some sort of checklist, right? Yes, yes, like of course. Some documents, it wasn't like, okay, let me think what I 
test today, right? Let me let me test GPS. I mean, at first it was kind of like that. <laughs> then, okay. as we got more professional, we started doing our own checklists and we earned our own tests. There's also, in particular, for Android phones, you have to certify your phone with Google if you want to have the Google apps in in your phone, because otherwise you're not allowed to. And you have to meet certain criteria and you have to pass certain tests. So that's called the CTS. I don't remember what it stands for, actually. <laughs> it's been a while, but I actually used to do that as well. I mean, most of the CTS testing was carried out in China, but sometimes I would have to repeat those tests uh, and in back at home, and I would repeat most of those at least, because some of them were required special equipment, which I did not have. There's also more specific tests like RF testing, which is you need a special lab for it, which, of course, I did not have either. Well, I can imagine that at some point it becomes a bit repetitive, right? And uh, you basically need to run through the same checklist with a new firmware update, right? Yes. Okay, like, let me check GPS. Or let me check this thing. Yeah, it was very repetitive. Sometimes you would get new tests because new requirements would come in. Like, for instance, we started working in voice over LTE back in Mexico. So we had to do more new tests for voice over LTE, stuff like that. So new requirements needed a new test, but essentially it was all testing and refinement of the previous tests. Sometimes the most exciting things would be like, oh, we have to do this specific field testing, which is get on a car and then start a call and then drive in a specific route. And you would pass the test if the, if the call would not drop, essentially. And you would also call the carrier, an engineer in the, in the telephone company. So they would record the actual test as well. So they would get all the data and they would tell you whether you've passed or not. And then sometimes they would, those routes would change and it was like exciting. <laughs> but that's pretty much it. Okay. Well, I guess at some point you decided, okay, it's uh, too repetitive. I want to quit, right? Yeah, it's more than that. Yeah. It's more than that. But yeah, I mean, issues in, in the company, like I was not satisfied with our output and how the company was developing, lots of stuff. But yeah, mm -hmm. the people I worked with were very nice, but I did not enjoy that kind of work. Mm -hmm. And then you decided to quit. That's right. But then you also mentioned that you were unemployed for some time. So you just quit Correct. without, uh, you know, looking back, without looking for the same type of job to, you know, continue. Yeah. So how did you find courage to just leave it? I cheated uh, in a way. Luckily for me, I have a very strong family support system and I had a bit of money saved up. I mean, it was scary for me in the sense that I did not know what I wanted to do with my life yet, but I was not scared of, am I going to eat tomorrow or am I going to have a roof tomorrow? That was not the issue. I quit and I went back to my family. They were very understanding and I started studying right away after a month-long break or something. That was my longest vacation, sort of. <laughs> then I started studying front-end, actually. I started looking into front-end developing. Then I quickly realized that I did not enjoy that at all. And after I looked around what I could study, and then I fell upon machine learning, which I was interested in. And I joined a postgraduate degree course, and I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. And here I am. And you kind of knew that you wanted to work in IT, right? Because you mentioned front-end and then you kind of uh, looked around what else is there in the IT field, right? And then you eventually ended up doing machine learning. I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to work in a completely unrelated field, but mm -hmm. I do not know anything about any other fields. <laughs> so IT is what I know, essentially. And IT is such a wide field, such a huge field that you can become specialized in a very specific thing and just perform a, a fulfilling career there in that specific field. So I did not feel like I would have to move because I felt like there was so much more to explore. And 
so yeah, I didn't contemplate it at first. And then why machine learning? So you mentioned that you were doing front end, you didn't like it, and then you came across this machine learning. So what did you like about this? Right. It was challenging. I liked the math. It was pretty hard, but I felt like, wow, this is substantial. Because most of what I did before in QA, I did not really apply what I had learned back at school. I had never worked in software development before. I had never done anything of the sort. So I was essentially writing Excel spreadsheets and that sort of stuff, which I did not enjoy. And I felt like when we started studying it and we had to do the project for the course, I realized that I was having fun. Uh, <laughs> that's it pretty much. And I was already interested in artificial intelligence because I feel like there's so much more to do yet. And so I felt like this is a very wide field which I can grow in. So I think it's worth diving in and, and studying it and getting good at it. So that's it. There are so many more things I'm interested in as well, but you can't do it all. So I chose, let's get into this and let's do it properly. So that's it. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you didn't really have a plan, right? So you just, okay, I kind of like it. Let's see what's there. And you just explore this uh, one step uh, at a time, right? Or did you actually have some sort of plan? My plan was, at first I wanted to quit and I wanted to have time for myself to get myself cleared out and figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I thought, well, I, I know I'm an IT kind of guy because that's what I know and I actually like it and I'm interested in the field. Like I, I keep up with the tech news and everything. So I, let's see what else is there. I was pretty sure I did not want to do QA. I also did not want to do regular IT stuff like sysadmin stuff because I did summer jobs before when I was younger and I didn't really enjoy it. So I started looking, I wanted to get into the more development stuff. And when I tried out machine learning and I learned more about it and I realized what the width of the field and how much there was left to do, I said, yeah, this is a very interesting field. I want to get into it. And so I did. Okay. So can you tell us how exactly the journey looked like for you? So from the moment you realized this is interesting to the moment you started looking for a job in this field? Sure. Before I joined any course, before I studied anything, I asked my friends. I keep in touch with a lot of university friends. And, you know, some of them are in the um, embedded development. Some of them are in machine learning. Some of them are in elsewhere, you know, plenty of fields. So I just ask around, like, what do you do? What kind of things uh, do you do? Do you like it? Would you change something? You know, that sort of stuff. A couple of friends, when they talked to me about machine learning, I said, they actually recommended me, you should read a couple of books, like, check this video out. And then probably join a course or two if you are interested in joining a proper course, but maybe not a full master's degree. Then I have these couple of recommendations here in Barcelona. And I said, okay, thank you very much. I looked at the materials they suggested and I joined the postgraduate course. I was suggested because the head teacher was a very famous guy in the university I studied in. And so I joined it and I loved it. So it was just one course, right? It wasn't a yeah. degree. No, it wasn't a degree. It was one course. It was a five-month-long course. It was a pretty mm -hmm. long course, but it was a postgraduate course. It's not a full degree. So I finished it, and I said, I should learn more. What should I do next? Because the course started in November or December and then finished in April or May. So I thought, well, I cannot join a, any degree right now because it's at the end of the school year, and so what should I do? I started looking at my options, and after talking about one of my buddies in the course, he suggested me to join a summer course, a summer school course. 
which I did. It's called Neuromatch Academy. It's a nonprofit association which they do this neuroscience conferences and they also do courses and it's meant for neuroscience but they also have this module this one month long module for deep learning for neuroscience and since i was looking for the kind of thing like projects for me to build up my portfolio and to get more actual experience developing neural networks i said let's join it that was last summer not this year last year and it was a pretty tough course i liked it i don't remember almost anything from it because it was neuroscience, <laughs> which I do not know. And I had issues keeping up, but it was very interesting. And then after that, another friend of mine who used to live in Berlin, he suggested me to join Data Talks Club. And I said, oh, sure, I'll take a look. And I joined the machine learning Zoom camp, which I really enjoyed. Then I joined the data engineering Zoom camp, which I also really enjoyed because it was a part of the equation that I almost no knowledge about. And then there was the machine learning ops, which I had to drop out because I was already working and I could not keep up with everything. <laughs> but yeah, that's it. I did those three things. After the postgraduate course, my goal was to build up my portfolio by doing projects, maybe joining a Kaggle, Kaggle, Kaggle. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. I, I say Kaggle. Kaggle, okay. Like Kaggle competition. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you know what I mean. So uh, yeah. I'm perhaps doing a few of those, which I never ended up doing any because I got hired before I, I had the chance to start. So you didn't have a portfolio? I mean, apart from the course Yeah, project. apart from the, that's right. Apart from my GitHub, which is the, my notes and the things from the courses and like the stuff from postgraduate course as well. That's it. I did not have an actual portfolio, but apparently we're in high demand. So <laughs> they're trying to find as many people as possible to work right now. So. I guess I was lucky in that regard. Yeah. So what was the most difficult thing for you? So you did a postgraduate course, so then That's you right. did summer school, then you did uh, two Zoom camps from Data Talks Club, and then you started looking for a job, right? Mm -hmm. When did you actually start looking for a job? To what point? At the beginning of this year, perhaps. At the beginning of this year. Besides the technical knowledge, like how to do actual machine learning, I actually had a few gaps about how to approach an interview, how to prepare your curriculum vitae, that sort of stuff, you know, like th those soft skills that you need to, to actually get hired, which are not actually related to what you're supposed to work in. But those are hurdles that you have to pass anyway, if you want to get hired. So I hired a coach and he helped me figure out the stuff. Like he got me started in how to talk to people, how not to be confrontational, but at the same time, how to plant your feet in the ground and how to, you know, defend your interests and then how to prepare my cv because also cvs are becoming more i actually showed you my cv and you said i prefer the kind of cv which is like a list of things which is what i used to have but then my coach said yeah that's fine but nowadays most of people don't want to actually look at the list of things because they have so much things to sort through so they have they want something visual they need something visual interesting <laughs> yeah so i did my cv in a more visual visual manner that sort of stuff Anyway, I manage, you know, through some contacts as well. Like, I'm looking for a job. Oh, I have this guy who's interested. So let me talk to him and maybe you can get an interview. Oh, cool. Yeah. I still applied through, you know, LinkedIn, but then I also got in touch with my contacts who got in touch with some more people. And I eventually started some processes. And I started one process before I actually was serious with my coach. And that did not go well because the person who interviewed me started asking pretty tough questions, things like, so you have a data frame, but this data frame in Pandas actually exceeds the memory size you've got, the, the memory available in your system. So what happens then? And I was like, 
I don't know, man. I mean, I guess the program will crash or something, but I'm not sure what happens then. You know, that sort of low level stuff that I was not prepared at all to do. And yeah, he told me, thank you for the interview, but you're in a very junior position and we were looking for someone more experienced. And I was like, yeah, sure. Uh, whatever. Thank you for the opportunity, but that's it. Then I did a couple more processes. The two first ones were an interview uh, in order to get to know the people. And then I was supposed to do a technical exercise. The first one, after the exercise, I got rejected. They told me, thank you, but we're not interested. The second one, they actually made me an offer. But that was after I had done the third interview, the third process, which did not have a technical aspect beyond a few very easy questions that they asked me right there in the interview. And they made me an offer in that third interview. And I said, sure, let's go for it. But yeah, maybe I had received the offer before I had done the third interview. I might have accepted it. So who knows, maybe I will be working for a different company right now. Mm, yeah. And all of these companies, well, except the first process, which did not go well, but these three last processes were uh, NLP related, which is Funny, it's interesting because I did not actually explicitly look for NLP projects, but yeah, <laughs> it's funny how that works. Did you actually have any NLP experience in your, because like in uh, our Zoom camps, we didn't cover that. Yeah. And then I don't know, did you study this separately? I did some NLP back in my original postgraduate course. So I was familiar mm -hmm. with it. I was not an expert because actually an NLP part, I did not enjoy it as much as some of the other parts of the course. You know, we had different teachers and the teacher we got for that part wasn't my favorite. But yeah, I did have some experience. It didn't come as something completely new for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have a few questions. So the first question is, what right. kind of soft skills did you have to prepare for your data science interview? So you mentioned that, uh, like, not to be confrontational and things like that. But what was there exactly? Like, what did they look for and what did you need to prepare for? I worked that kind of stuff with my coach. And the way we did it was with role-playing exercises. So if you have a friend or you know someone who would be interested in helping you out, and maybe he could play the part of being a tough interviewer and put things in a difficult manner to you, I think that would be a very cool exercise to do and to prepare for it. But essentially, it all depends on how you are. I do not know how to sell myself to others, right? I undersell myself. So I look at what the stuff I do and I think, yeah, I'm not very good at this. But then I look at some other people's work and I realize, whoa, this guy sucks. So maybe I'm not so bad at it, but I don't have the confidence perhaps to upsell myself so as to actually, you know, in a way that is actually more objective compared to what the actual quality of things are. So for me, one of the most difficult things was to actually not undersell myself, you know, like not being, yeah, I'm not that good at this. I mean, you cannot say that to someone who's actually interested in hiring you. But I actually did not want to lie either because I did not want to sell myself in a way that did not reflect reality. That was really tough for me. Mm -hmm. But your ZoomCamp projects were amazing. Your notes were excellent. <laughs> my notes are very good. Your notes are <laughs> My good. notes are fine. My projects, not so much. I'm, come on. <laughs> like they were good. Some people were amazing. Some people were like, wow, this is a very, very good project. I think my project was average in both camps. But thank you very much for the compliment. I appreciate it. Maybe can you... <laughs> Tell us about these projects. The projects I did for the Zoom camps? Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I don't remember already. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> Wait, let me think. The project for the Zoom camp, for the machine learning Zoom camp, was I found a data set, which was kind of fun. It was a speed dating data set. And that data set had a lot of features, like so many features. Essentially, what you had to do is, I believe that the target feature was whether they would match, essentially. 
but there were a few uh, very dependent features from each other. So the exploratory data analysis step was of very high importance specific for that a project. And I think that I could have done much more in that regard, but it was fun. I mean, it, it was a very fun project to do because it was something completely unexpected. So it was very funny. I found that data set by chance. And for my second project for the, uh, well, was that the midterm project or was that the final project? Yeah, I think you demoed the midterm project, right? Yeah, I think so, so if yeah. if anyone is interested in the playlist, we have a demo from Alvaro where he shows the project. Oh yeah, my second project was image classification task. Yeah, I had a bunch of vegetable data set. I had fruits and vegetables Vegetable. and yeah, it was a very standard run-of-the-mill image classification project. But I, yeah, I wanted to do something with deep learning and so that's what I chose. I think I wanted to do something else at first, but I did not have the time in order to, because I when I had two weeks to turn in the project. Mm. But yeah, and I'm a very slow developer. That's another issue. <laughs> another question we have is, did you deploy your final projects in AWS? And how was your experience uh, with my this? Final? Yeah, like, did you actually deploy them in the ML Zoom Kamka? I did deploy them, but not to AWS. I deployed them to Google Cloud, I believe. Google Cloud, okay. Yeah. I used Google Cloud both in my postgraduate course and then in, in the Zoom camp because I was already familiar with it and we were working with Google Cloud because they have a very generous credit at the beginning at the one you start. Yeah, 300, right? Yeah, 300 dollars or something. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, very, very good. It's like, it's really enough for three months. Too bad it's just for three months, right? I could yeah. use them for <laughs> way longer, like for a year. I mean, you can do... My email account number one, my email account number two, my email account number three, and then keep doing new new accounts so you can just create all the time, but I don't feel good doing that. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't uh, AWS and it wasn't a problem for you, right? So no, you I deploy everything. We did use AWS for doing the course, right? Because we used them to deploy TensorFlow, yeah, yeah. And Lambda and that stuff. Uh, so you used it too, or you did this in Google Cloud? Mm, no, I, I did use it for the course. I followed the AWS steps for the course, but then my final project was in Google Cloud. Okay, interesting. So how did you solve this problem of uh, not being able to sell yourself? Because the projects you just, just described, they look amazing to me, but then at the <laughs> same time, like you say, ah, there were people that uh, had way cooler projects. I mean, yeah, some, I, I remember when we had to do peer reviewing, I looked at some of the projects I was assigned and I was like, wow, this is blowing my mind. This is amazing. And then some of them like, yeah, this is fine. This is a good project. But some of them were like way ahead of the rest. Your question was, how did I solve my issue of understanding myself? Yes. Or did you even solve it? I mean, I, st I still haven't solved it, I think. <laughs> but I'm working on it. I think I'm better at it. I'm still with my coach. And we recently did some tests, uh, some exercises. And he told me, you've done some progress with this because uh, you would have like crashed right away at the beginning of the interview. But right now you're standing your ground, which, and he commended me for it. So I'm still working on it, but I'm getting better. But yeah, essentially it's, you explain what you can do, but you don't try to make yourself humble nor prideful either. So just trying to state things as in a more neutral way as possible and do not belittle yourself under any comment that the interviewer is telling you. That's essentially it. So basically doing the same thing you just did when you described projects, right? You, you said what was the data set you used, what was the problem you were solving, what kind of tools you use for solving this problem, right? And that's right. Give uh, objective facts about the 
project, right? Without saying, Correct. oh, like maybe this wasn't the best project I've seen. You, you don't mention that, right? Correct. I would totally have said that. Like, this is not the best project, but I mean, I just did, right? Like, when I told you about yeah. my final project for the Zoom camp, I undersold myself by telling you that it was a very run of the mill project, which I think it is because it's just a very simple image specification problem. But at the same time, in an actual work interview, you shouldn't say that. You just say, this is an image classification problem. I use these tools to solve it. And this is the task to solve. And that's it. And then you, you let the interviewer make her own opinion about the project rather than offering your opinion about it. Mm -hmm. Were the projects of any use, actually, when you interviewed? Like, did anyone care about your portfolio? Did they ask you about the projects? Actually, they didn't, <laughs> which was very interesting <laughs> because they were more interested in the technical exercises. So I've talked about four interviews, four processes, right? The first one, which was just an interview, I didn't go well. Then the middle two, which involved doing homework of sorts, like they gave me some questions and I had to turn them in a week later. And the final interview, which also involved technical questions, but they were very simple and I got hired with them. Um, for the last three, well, I was kind of surprised at the last interview because I thought that the questions they asked me were very simple, but they needed the people and they hired me. The middle two processes, which were, I had a week to solve the problems they gave me. One of them was a bunch of questions, like hard questions. And they told me, you can look them up if you want to, but keep in mind that we'll do a follow-up interview and we'll ask you more questions and you won't have the chance to look them up. So do whatever you feel like. And I was like, okay, sure. So I tried to s solve them all without looking up anything other than my specific notes that I had for my previous courses. And then I, I did have to look up a few, a couple of things of, uh, on Google, but I studied them again, like I covered them up and that's essentially what I did. But then that second interview never came. So I don't know what it, how it could have been like. The second one was a project, essentially. They gave me a data set, a weather data set, a time series, essentially. And they asked me to figure out how to predict weather in an approximate manner. It was a fun exercise because I had never done anything with time series before. So it was fun. For that process, for the one with the time series, that's the one company that actually made me an offer, but I rejected because I had the better offer from the other company. Yeah. Did any of the interviewers care about your knowledge in um, cloud? Like, did they ask you about the cloud or it was just these questions that you talked about? I mean, the first one, the one that went badly, the interviewer asked me some cloud questions, but I honestly don't remember what they were. And the last interview, they asked me if I was familiar with some of them. Like, are you familiar with Azure? And I said, I haven't worked with Azure, but I have worked with Google Cloud and AWS before. So essentially, it's they're all similar. They just have their own specific quirks to each platform, but that's it. And I don't remember if there were any more specific questions. Mm -hmm. So they just asked if you know cloud, and then you said yes, and then they, they were satisfied. Yeah, which is why I was surprised when I got the offer for the last interview, because I thought, is that it? Like, you're not asking anything else? But that's how I also do it, to be honest. Like, I don't know if it makes sense to go into specifics of a cloud. I mean, it depends. Yeah. Okay, we have a comment. So it's not a question, but a comment. Right. I am in the current cohort of the ML Zoom camp. I always go back to Alvaro's notes after finishing a week and revise what I learned in a week. Great notes. So I do fully agree. So maybe in Thank a you. way, your notes are like projects because he also mentioned that you were for the hard questions you were referring to your notes. And then I wanted to ask you, 
tell us your secret. So how did you make this note so good? Like, what was your process like? Man, you probably won't like what I'm going to say, but I am actually not very happy with my notes because... <laughs> underselling? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, this is actually, this is not underselling. Uh, let me tell you why. <laughs> I think they are too wordy. I think they're not notes. I think they're more like literary work in a way. The way I approach them is almost like I am trying to write a book, which is not what I intended to do, actually. You maybe can convert them into a book. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I've never <laughs> written a book before, but the thing is, notes are supposed to be something that you can refer to. It's like an extension of your brain, right? Like you don't remember a specific thing, but you know where to look for it and you go and look there and then you remember everything. But in my latest notes, especially for the data engineering Zoom camp, if you look at those, they are way too long in the sense that it's actually hard to go look for specific stuff in those notes because they are so long. I actually had to create indexes for each uh, lesson because they were so long. I mean, I am happy with the content. I think I did a good job formatting them and I had a lot of fun doing them and I learned a lot, but they do not accomplish what they are supposed to do, which is being a easy and quick reference to go look for stuff. Like second brain, right? Yeah. It's actually something I'm very interested in, but I have not managed to explore. Perfect. I know there are these tools like uh, Obsidian, um, Remnote, and all these amazing tools that are out there, which are used for um, scientific research and everything. And I'd really like to dig into those, but I honestly haven't had the time to how to approach it because they are a little complicated at first. Uh, I, there are a few concepts like settled casting and that sort of stuff if you want to look up into it. But yeah, I just started writing in Markdown and you know, without any specific linking between sections. And then with any gaps, I could find like, this specific concept is such and such, then I would add links to external pages if I thought they were meaningful in any way or could help me or someone else. But that's it. As for the process, how it went, the way I work is, I actually really enjoy looking at online videos because you can pause them. I suck at listening and taking notes at the same time. So a video is great because you can pause it at any time. Like you can listen for a little bit, then pause it and write down what you just listened. If you didn't catch anything, go back. So you have maybe two screens. On one screen, you have the video. On another screen, you have your editor. And then you listen and you type. Yeah. I watch a little bit of the video. Then I pause. And then I go to my editing window. I VS Code, actually. And I just write there. And if there's something more visual or anything that I don't feel confident doing a diagram for it, I just do a screenshot and then I copy paste it in the notes. I just link, add a link to the picture and that's it. And that's how I work essentially. Okay. But so yeah, listen a little bit, pause, write down, go back, then maybe think a little bit. If something's not clear, watch it a couple times more, which is why it takes me so long to write the notes, especially in the data engineering Zoom camp. It was a very Dense, right? Dense course, and there was so much content to go through. Luckily, I was not working, so I could spend all day long doing notes. <laughs> That's your secret, right? That's my That's secret. Process. If you have yeah. free time, you can do those notes. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Be unemployed and just write down everything on yeah. the video. And then, so you said you also did uh, quite some research, right? If something is maybe not explained at all or not explained well, you would link like some other resource that explains this thing. Yeah. It's not just notes from the course, but also notes with some extra things from you. Yeah, because I wanted to understand why we were doing some things in that specific way. So I sometimes would have to expand the explanations in the videos with my own research. So that's what I did. 
However, in the machine learning Zoom camp, at the beginning, my notes were very short because they were more like actual notes. And it was basic stuff, which I already knew. So I didn't feel the need to write notes for those things. And I actually split the content of the notes between the actual notes and GitHub Gists, which are, if you are not aware of those, for anyone who's listening and is not aware, it's this part of GitHub, which allows you to put actual notes in it, like uh, an actual notebook. Like snippets, right? Yeah, snippets of code and stuff like that. But they're not actually attached to any repo. So it's just there. And I thought I can do some cheat sheets and stuff like that. And I would split writing notes between the gists and the notes. Some of the gists are good. I use the, the Git gists and the Conda gists. I used it all the time. Those cheats are great for me. But others, I did another one for Python, which I never use because it sucks. It's faster and better for me to just look up something for Python or Pandas or SciPy or anything. You mean look up in Google, yeah. right? Yeah, look up in Google is faster than actually go look at the, at the gist. The way of writing notes keeps evolving, and it was a continuous experiment in a way. Mm-hmm. Was it actually useful for you personally? I mean, we as the community, we do appreciate it because it helps to go back to them Thank after you. the videos. But for you personally, oh, yeah. do you think now, was it useful for you? Yeah, they were very useful. They are not super useful in the specific way that notes are supposed to be, which are quick reference to things. However, the process of building those notes was super helpful for me because when you actually write down stuff and you have to think of how you explain those things, it helps the ideas and the content to remain in your memory. So in that regard, they were extremely helpful. Yeah. Keep in mind that if you ask me for anything specific from the notes, I will probably not remember because my memory is not that great, but I will go, oh yeah, this was written in that part. So I can go check it out and then go look it up. Actually, uh, you know what, when somebody asks uh, now questions about, about ML Zoom Camp, or they go to your notes. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually something that I do too, because videos are great for explaining stuff, but if you want to look something up quick, they're not so good because you know they have, you have to scrub through the video to actually find the point where people mm-hmm. are talking about something specific. And people started adding those timestamps in the videos, which are super helpful, but it's still faster to go to the, some reading material. It's not indexable, right? So it's, it's better if you look at the video first, and then once you've read it, then you need a written reference, which is much faster than going back to the video. And there is a comment. Why do you think you're not a good communicator? I'm listening to you now and you're great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but I guess also maybe the coach helped. <laughs> do you think like having a coach in a situation like you is important? Like, would you be able to do this without a coach? I might. Yeah. I mean, I could afford it and I thought, why not? It's going to be a faster way than doing it by myself. But probably you can do it on your own. Maybe you can find some self-help books or anything that takes you. I mean, I I actually have a couple that I've been recommended that I should read. I still haven't had the time, like how to talk to people and how to negotiate and stuff like that. We actually have some pending exercises with my coach to actually how to negotiate for a pay raise, which we haven't done yet. (laughs) And that's going to be critical for my future (laughs) if I want to, you know, earn more money. But is it important or mandatory? No, I don't think so. But it all depends on how you are and what resources you've got, I think. It's on a case-by-case basis, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the, there is a, also a question about the coach. Was the coach specifically helping you with hiring for a data science position? Or it more was more like a communication coach to help you with soft skills? 
I mean, he knows that I'm inspiring data scientists and I wanted to work in machine learning. But the coach does not know anything about machine learning. Everything he knows, he's learned by me or by some other of his clients. So he knows computer stuff. He studied computer engineering as well. But he's been working on in this kind of field for so long that he hasn't kept up with this specific field. But most interviews, most technical interviews are going to be essentially similar. I mean, the technical stuff changes between them, obviously, because they're different fields. But the way you approach people and the way you talk to people and, and how you should prepare for them, it's very similar, I believe, between all of them. I'm at this time not aware that you should approach an interview in a different manner, depending on what kind of field you're working on. Honestly, I'm, I don't think so. So we did work specifics to machine learning in the way that I would tell the coach like what I think it's interesting about machine learning and what I think it's the, their potential and stuff. And he told me, oh, then if that case, if this is your opinion, then this is how you should explain it to the interviewer, because that will give the interviewer a better view of who you are, right? That sort of stuff. But the specifics of interviewing are just generic, I think. Mm -hmm. So it was more like how to approach the hiring manager interview around how to answer behavioral interview questions. That's right. Like how to answer what's the difference between random forest and things. Yeah, because I mean, the coach is, isn't able to help me with that because he doesn't know that. That falls on me. <laughs> I'm the one who's supposed to know that. Mm -hmm. Do you think knowing this uh, mathematical or implementation details, do you think it's important for passing the interview process for a data science position? It depends. I mean, it depends on what your role is, what you're being hired for, and obviously the kind of person who interviews you. For instance, just today, I got an email from one of the people who's working right now in my project. And this guy did an analysis. He's been testing uh, different neural networks for about two months right now. And because we gave him our model and he took a look at it and he's analyzed it. And he essentially deconstructed and reconstructed it. And he gave us all the specifics of the neural network. And that's amazing because it's going to be very helpful for our project. So knowing the in and outs, you know, the very specifics of machine learning or, or the implementation of side of things can be useful, for instance, in this specific aspect. But on the kind of things I do right now, which I'm more of a managing role, essentially, because I also have to do some technical stuff, but honestly, much less than I was expecting. That is not so important because I'm working with people who already know how to do so. So it all depends. I think, on what you want to do and what you are being hired for. I think that it's a very hard part of this is sometimes you are not exactly quite sure what you're being hired for or what the person who's interviewing with you expects from you. That can be a handicap. But yeah, it can be useful to know so. Yeah. So I actually wanted to talk to what you do at work right now, but we have so many questions. So okay. we can just go with the questions. So the question we have, the most important one is how to prepare for technical questions in an interview other than portfolio projects. I mean, honestly, whatever works for you, man. <laughs> Preparing for technical questions is such a hard thing to do because you cannot know what you're going to be asked for unless you know what you're being hired for, right? I mean, for instance, if the company that's going to hire you works in NLP projects, then it makes sense to study specifically NLP right? And what's NLP, what does it entail, what kind of tasks you solve, how do you approach those tasks, whatever. But sometimes you don't really know what to do. So it all depends what kind of technique you are most comfortable with when studying. Taking notes from videos, that's fine. Reading your past notes, which is what I did. 
doing some exercises, building up your portfolio is also good because not only you have something to show, but those skills are being ingrained into your brain when you carry out those projects. So it depends on how you want to approach those. I mean, whatever works for you, honestly. Even though they didn't specifically ask you about these projects, it was still useful for you to master the skills, right? Right. But I guess it's pretty unusual. Maybe they just didn't ask you about them, right? Because everything was public. Everything yeah. is public. It's on your GitHub. Maybe they just went through this. Yeah, everything's my GitHub. And yeah, they did ask me some, I mean, for the company I work for, when the, actually the two people who hired me are not working for the company anymore, which is kind of funny. But I was asked a few technical questions. They were just very simple. Like, well, if you have this kind of task, how would you solve it? And I would do a very high level approach to the task, you know, that sort of thing, but nothing super specific. And there were no coding exercises in this particular instance. In those previous processes, I had to turn in code. So it all depends. Can you tell us how your typical work day looks like? Sure. I read email <laughs> a bit of it. And I also check out Teams when my computer decides to run it because holy crap, uh, Teams is such a hog. You're on Mac, right? Right now I'm on Mac, but my work computer is a PC. So it's Windows. Yeah, it's Windows. And it doesn't run Microsoft Teams. It only had only eight gigs of RAM, which I thought was not enough. And then I recently got upgraded to 24 gigs of RAM, which is amazing. And right now I think I can finally run Teams properly. <laughs> but yeah, my usually today right now is I'm in charge of a project. So what I do is I've set up a way of managing it. I've got an Excel sheet. I've got also Microsoft Planner, which is Trello-like thing that is included with Office. And it also, it also integrates well with Teams. So it's good because you're in your specific team and then you just there's this tab with the tasks there, which is great. And right now there's only two of us. It's only me and some other guys. So we divide what we want to do. And we work from home. So each one of us works in a specific thing. And then at the end of the day or halfway uh, through the day, then we update each other on what we've done. And that's it. Then, for instance, we had a, back in April, May, that was the, the zenith of the project, right? Uh, I seen, and the, the point with the most development going on, there were five of us and each one was coding different stuff. We had to agree on what had to be done and then we had to agree on what tasks. It's more of a project management kind of thing than actual machine learning. But right now, because why? well, there's less of us right now. There's only two people, and we'll have a, a third person coming soon, but not yet. So I have to do also some more technical stuff. But that's it. And what kind of tech stack do you use? So we are an Azure house. Well, more like our client works with Azure, so we make use of the resources of the client. And all of our code is in Python. We used Python and Autokeras, which is a library. Which, if you don't know. You set up your data set, you set up a task, and Autokeras will look the best model for you. Everything is done for you pretty much automatically. And then you do have to fine tune things. But essentially, yeah, that's what we did. Then we run those scripts. Those Python scripts are being run in, on a Databricks cluster. And we orchestrate those scripts with something called Azure um, Data Factory. Essentially, you, work, you create your workflows on Data Factory. And so when something's triggered, then it calls a specific script which then calls another script and, you know, that sort of stuff. And everything is written to SQL database, SQL database, sorry. I'm used to saying the, the spelling, it's, it's supposed to be SQL in English. Is it SQL? Yeah. I think both work, right? I'm not sure. I hear both options. 
okay, then whatever. <laughs> SQL, <laughs> SQL, whatever. But yeah, a Microsoft SQL database on Azure. That's where it's uh, all the data is being kept. It's a stack that uh, the developers were more familiar with. So that's what we went with in our, because the project was supposed to be delivered in September and we had to deliver our first prototype in June, which was a shock. So we had to speed up the process by three months. And right now we're extending it and you know we're adding more new stuff. But yeah, it's been a challenge. <laughs> okay. And uh, for somebody who wants to go through the same process as you, somebody who is uh, coming not from necessarily from very technical background, I don't know how much technical your background was, but I guess, forgive me if I'm wrong, but my interpretation of what you didn't require a lot of technical ex expertise. Sorry, if I, I don't mean to it, offend it you. It did require some, but I know what you mean. Yeah, so the question is like, for somebody who wants to follow your path, maybe not necessarily like even from a less technical background or more technical background, how do they do this? What would your recommendation be in this case? Would you suggest them to just leave and, you know, spend two years being unemployed, <laughs> take courses, <laughs> take notes? I mean, that's what works for me, but it all depends on what works for you. I mean, I do have a technical background because, you know, I did uh, computer engineering and, and science, whatever. I studied that, even though uh, my actual work was not as technical, mm -hmm. I did have to know some stuff because I had to read all these Google documents, which explained what the homologation process was like and what mm -hmm. the requirements were. So we, I had to know what kind of modifications were not supposed to be done on the phone in order to pass those tests. So it did require some knowledge about you know how Android is layered and that sort of stuff. But yeah, I don't believe that you need a technical background in order to work in this field, but it helps a lot. I mean, it, it all depends on what kind of role you want to do. So if you want to be an actual data scientist, like working uh, in most of the high level stuff, like experimenting with models and such, it helps a lot to have a mathematical background because that's all very theoretical in a way. And there's lots of research going on and lots of new stuff is coming up all the time. So it really helps a lot if you have a mathematical background there. And actually in my company, my colleague right now, he's at the mathematics and there are quite a bit of mathematics in the company. However, on the other side, if you want to do the actual data engineering part, if you want to be very good at Spark or you want to be very good at Kafka or you want to be very good at any of the tools that, that are being used in, in machine learning workflows, then you don't need such a technical background because it's all about knowing the tool and learning how to use it. I believe that you can come from any particular background and work on that. However, it helps if you have some technical background because then you already know all the high concepts and when you have to change to another tool sure you have to learn new stuff but it won't come in a weird manner to you right it's like if you are learning docker so yeah you can use docker fine and oh now i have to use kubernetes okay then i'm learning kubernetes but if you know what a linux kernel is and how it relates to the underlying virtualization or sandboxing parts of stuff it helps to understand why some things work the way they do but they're not entirely necessary so on that part of things, I think that you don't need a technical background for it, but it depends on what you want to do. The way I understood you, so you already knew how to program, right? This yeah. is something you studied in uh, your computer University, science degree? Yeah. University, yeah. That's right. But I did lots of Java, <laughs> which Java sucks, sorry. But with Python. Oh, Python's great. I love it. It's quite easy to pick up after any programming language. So if you have that's experience right. with any programming language, 
be Java or C++ or, I don't know, whatever, JavaScript, yeah. then just starting in, in Python should be relatively easy. And for you, I guess that was the case, right? Python was very easy. I mean, there are some quirks to Python, like the way you do iterations in loops, mm -hmm. which is quite unique, I believe. But yeah, it's um, programming in Python is a joy. It's very, very easy. I think that's it for today. So I want to thank you for joining us today, for sharing your experience, for telling us about your career journey. And yeah, thanks for being here. And thanks everyone for asking your questions. Thank you very much, everyone. And thank you, Alexi, for having me. Yeah, have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Goodbye.